Hello and welcome to Habemus Papam, episode 154, Alexander II. Dear brothers and sisters, Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Habemus Papam. Hey everybody, like previous episodes, we know our Pope today already because he was part of that reforming milieu of priests and bishops who were operating in Italy since the time of St. Leo IX. We met him especially last episode when he was sent to Milan to help St. Peter Damien reform the very corrupt clergy there. His name was Anselm de Baggio, and he was the son of a noble family which had connections in the imperial court, and he himself was active before his ordination in imperial circles. Anselm was ordained a priest of Milan in 1055 by the Archbishop Guido, who we already met last week as the kind of corrupt archbishop. And it was there in Milan that he became acquainted with the Patarini, which, if you remember, was a lay organization dedicated to reforming the corrupt clergy and church of Milan. Patarini, if you remember, meant ragpickers. It was a derogatory term given to these pious lay people by the clergy themselves and that they wore as a badge of honor. Anselm was really moved by their zeal and piety and himself really took up their cause. And the Paterini in turn considered Anselm one of the four non-corrupt priests in the entire diocese. So Anselm began to preach reform at every opportunity he had. But the preaching of reform would not be the best when one of the opponents to reform was Anselm's own Bishop Guido. And there are varying takes on this, but one take says that Guido convinced the emperor to have Anselm appointed Bishop of Lucca just outside Florence in order to get him out of Milan and out of his hair. Other scholars see that this is not totally credible, especially considering Anselm's own context in the imperial court. Rather, they saw the appointment as the emperor placing a trusted man in a key spot in central Italy. Regardless of why, Anselm was ordained Bishop of Lucca in 1056 probably while he was in Germany during a visit of Pope Victor II to the emperor. He then returned from Germany in March of 1057 to his new diocese of Lucca. In Lucca, Anselm proved a capable administrator and a good bishop. He restored the finances of the diocese. He helped build back up the property and the parishes. But he also had some time for his home diocese of Milan. The pope sent him, as we heard, to help deal with the corruption of the church there twice. The first visit was with Hildebrand and was quick in 1057. But the second we've already heard about, and that was when he went with St. Peter Damien in 1060. And this was the real crux of the reforming movement, when St. Peter Damien preached a dramatic and rousing sermon in the cathedral, and then mandated the penance and reform of all the clergy of Milan, who had taken a mistress or obtained their office by simony. St. Peter Damien really steals the show, but it was Anselm who was working hard throughout to bring about this moment of true reform for his home diocese. Now finally, we come to 1061 in the death of Pope Nicholas II. If you remember from last week, we ended things on a sour note with the Germans. Nicholas had died in southern Italy, not in Rome, so there was a little confusion, and the Reform Party, headed by Hildebrand, waited a little before beginning the electoral process, particularly because of the location of Nicholas' death, partially because they were unsure what role the Germans would play. But the Reform Movement had enemies, as we've now already seen, in particular the Crescenzi and the Tuscolani, those two families who have dominated things for so long, they were still in the background. And they didn't want another Reform Pope, so they got a local monk and a delegation of nobles, and they managed to obtain some of the insignia of the papacy and that of the Patricus Romanus, and they headed to Germany to ask King Henry IV, and more importantly, his mother, the Empress Agnes, to pick a new pope and one especially that wasn't in Hildebrand's group of reformers. 
Now, a couple of details you need to know. First, remember that Henry IV is not yet Holy Roman Emperor. He's a young boy, and his mother is the regent, and she was really the ones pulling the string. Secondly, this title, Patricus Romanus. This was the title that went along with Holy Roman Emperor, and connection with that title was understanding that the emperor would have a role in picking the pope. So it was by having that title that gave the emperor the justification for picking the pope. Indeed, the reformers themselves asked the emperor to play that role back in the Dark Ages when the Tusculani had Rome completely under their control. So now what the Tusculani faction is doing is playing that same card that the reformers had done just for their own sake. Now, when Hildebrand realized what was happening, he acted quickly. He gathered the cardinals together just outside Rome on September 30th, 1061, and he proposed Anselm as a candidate. Anselm was both a reformer and had imperial connections, so it would be a good candidate to help ameliorate the situation. Then they brought him into the city of Rome, guarded by Norman troops, more on that later, and entered the Basilica of St. Peter's in Chains. There a large crowd of Romans had gathered and confirmed the election, and then brought, they brought him to be consecrated pope at St. John Lateran. Anselm took the name Pope Alexander II. But it won't be smooth sailing. The group of nobles from Rome had reached the boy king in Augsburg. They had been joined by some northern Italian bishops organized by the imperial chancellor, a bishop named uh, Guibert. He'll come back into the story later. And they were pushing for the candidacy of the Bishop of Parma, a man named Cadalius of Parma. Now, with all these anti-reformers in one place, they decided to get together a council in the Swiss city of Basel, where they crowned Henry IV Patricus Romanus, so that that way he could pick the new bishop of Rome, and then he appointed Cadalus as pope. Cadalus took the name Honorius II, and thus he becomes our next anti-pope. So we have a schism in the church, and the Reform Party and Alexander II worked hard to resolve it. St. Peter Damien sent several letters to Honorius II, to the imperial court, to the powerful Archbishop of Cologne, a man named Anno, urging them all to help end the schism. But the other side was working too. The Empress Agnes sent a certain bishop named Benzo to Rome with a ton of money, basically to try and bribe a path in front of Honorius II to get him into Rome and to get him support once he was there. And it seemed to work. The anti-pope's supporters defeated Alexander's, and in April of 1062, he entered Rome, took possession of St. Peter, and holed up in Castel San Angelo. Alexander had had to move across town to the Capitoline Hill, but the situation wouldn't last because there were other forces at play. Godfrey, the Duke of Tuscany, arrived at Rome with a large army in May of 1062, and he camped out at the Milvian Bridge just outside the city. Then he announced that both Honorius and Alexander needed to leave Rome until this was all sorted out. Honorius was forced to acquiesce, and he went back to Parma, and Alexander was willingly brought to Lucca. And apparently, though, this was good news for Alexander, because secretly Godfrey had been working with Anno, the Archbishop of Cologne, who was a very powerful figure in German politics. And this brings our story to the famous coup of Kaiserswerd. Okay, why had Godfrey taken this bold step? because things had changed in Germany. If you remember, Henry IV was just an 11-year-old boy, and the real power in the imperial court was his mother, the regent Empress Agnes. But this changed in April of 1062, when Anno of Cologne decided he would make a much better regent than the empress. But in order to be regent, he needed to get the young emperor on his side and away from his mother. So he plotted, and in April, Anno invited the empress and the young king to a castle he had in Kaiserswerd, which was a small island town on the Rhine, just north of Dusseldorf. Uh, incidentally, my family lived in Kaiserswerd for six years. The castle is still there, though it's in ruins. And once at the castle, Anno hosted a big dinner, which everyone enjoyed. And during the dinner, he talked with the young emperor about how awesome his new boat parked on the Rhine was. 
And Henry, just being an 11-year-old boy, of course, liked hearing about cool new boats. Who doesn't? And Anno offered to show it to him after dinner. And so Henry took him up on the offer. But once he was on the boat and the Empress Agnes and her supporters were still on shore, Anno cast off the lines and started sailing down the Rhine for Cologne. Henry realized what had happened and dove into the water, but his swimming skills were not great, and he started floundering. And so Anno sent a noble in after him, rescued him, and then sailed down to Cologne, leaving Agnes behind. Henry was forced to agree to having Anno as the regent and the power behind the throne, and his mother Agnes went off to retirement in a convent. So with Agnes out of the way, even though by kind of devious means, Honorius II's support dried up. And that's what prompted Godfrey to act in the way he had by sending his army to Rome. He was hoping to curry favor with the new power of the Archbishop Anno. And so Anno convened a council to examine the situation and sent his nephew to investigate in Italy. But basically the jig was up for Honorius. The Normans had pledged loyalty to Pope Alexander and already cleared Rome of the supporters of Honorius. So in March of 1063, Duke Godfrey escorted Pope Alexander back to Rome. There he held a synod excommunicating Honorius and reiterating the program of church reform, condemning especially simony and clerics breaking the promise of celibacy. But even now the story isn't over because Honorius came back one more time. He again gathered supporters with the help of the money from the bishop of Benzo and again marched on Rome and again drove Alexander II out. So the reform movement again had to try and defend Alexander. This time, however, things would be a little easier. Guibert, the chancellor of the empire in Italy, who was on Honorius' side, had been removed from his position by Anno and replaced by Gregory of Vericelli, who was a friend of Hildebrand. But St. Peter Damien almost messed the whole thing up. On his own initiative, he had written to Anno telling him to convoke a council to settle the situation. But when Hildebrand and Alexander found out, they were furious because it seemed like the authority to elect the pope rested not in Rome, where it belonged, but with some imperial council. Regardless, however, a council was held in Mantua in northern Italy. Alexander realized that it was the only way to wrap this issue up. And so he not only attended, but he basically led the council. And Honorius showed up, but didn't enter the city. He camped out in the country outside. He demanded that he be allowed to run the meeting since he was the real pope, but this got him nowhere. And so the day after Pentecost in 1063, Alexander opened the synod by calling on the Holy Spirit and then asking those present to bring their concerns. This they did, saying all the things that had been floating around against Alexander, which he then refuted. For example, some said that he had obtained the papacy through simony, not properly, and he responded, Man, I don't even want to be pope. I was elected by the cardinals and the people properly. Horseman gives us a little more detail to what he actually said, including, I call to witness the Holy Spirit whose coming we are now celebrating, that my soul has never been stained with simony, and that I was duly installed in the chair of Peter quite against my will. And this was done by those who are acknowledged to have the right according to the ancient custom of the Roman Church of electing and consecrating the Pope. Well, this was enough for everyone present. They said, uh, it's official, he's the Pope, let's get on with things. And they sung a Te Deum and they left the hall for the day. And the next couple of sessions saw Honorius excommunicate again, and almost all of the northern bishops except Guibert, who is now Archbishop of Ravenna, turned to the Pope's side. And with that, the crisis was really over. Anno stayed in Italy, negotiating a marriage for the young Henry to a woman named Bertha, And though he had to deal with a rival back in Germany trying to seize power in general, he kept things in hand and was close to the Pope. And the Pope, meanwhile, had continuing issues in Milan. His work of reforming the city was not done. Now that he was no longer there, the banner of reform had been taken up by a deacon named Ariald. The archbishop, though, had reneged on his promises to Alexander and St. Peter Damien and returned to practicing simony. So the Pope excommunicated him. Well, this stirred up the anti-reform crowd in Rome intensely. Ariald himself 
was attacked and killed. He was canonized a year later by Alexander II as a martyr, so we can rightly venerate him as Saint Ariald. And Alexander sent two more cardinals to Milan, and this time they made sure that the Archbishop Guido resigned and really took charge of things in Milan. The forces against the reformers kept at it and supported by Henry IV, but the Milanese had had enough of them by now. St. Ariald's martyrdom really kind of turned the tide of for reform in Milan, and now all the clergy were coming on board and things finally settled down. Okay, so now that Alexander is really firmly in control, let's talk about a couple uh, foreign issues. The first is Henry IV, who turns out doesn't like being a political football stolen from competing groups, and also turns out really doesn't like the church. More on that in later episodes. The Archbishop Anno had arranged a marriage for him with Bertha of Savoy. I mentioned that earlier. But by 1068, just two years later, he had decided he had had enough and wanted a divorce. And so he pleaded his case at a synod in Mainz. But the Pope sent St. Peter Damien up there, and he said to Henry, listen, just because you are king doesn't mean you can divorce whenever you want. And if you keep this up, there's no way you're going to get crowned Holy Roman Emperor, which we all know you want because it's a big ceremony. It's pretty cool, and you get an awesome new title which just made Henry more angry, but he gave up the case. The other big foreign issue came with the death of St. Edward the Confessor in England in 1051, and William, the Duke of Normandy, was one of the claimants to the throne, and he sent an embassy to Rome asking for the Pope's blessing on his plan to put his claim into action. Pope Alexander sent him a letter and a papal flag to carry in battle. In fact, you can see the scene in the famous Bayeux Tapestry, Uh, William, of course, became William the Conqueror after he successfully obtained the crown of England in 1066. And one reason Alexander supported William was his promise to help reform the Church of England upon his ascension to the throne and the fact that William was a Norman, which, you know, that helps because Alexander was allied with the Normans in Sicily. William was good to his word, working hard to stamp out simony, which he never engaged in, and bringing about the appointment of a former teacher of Alexander's, the famous Lanfranc of Beck, as Archbishop of Canterbury. We already met Lanfranc in the famous dispute with Berenger of Tours over transubstantiation, and this occurred at a council held in the town of Windsor, called by papal legates invited to England by William to help clean up the church. They not only got Lanfranc appointed Archbishop of Canterbury, but they also helped clean up corruption in many English dioceses and monasteries. So William began the process of reform of the Church of England, just as Alexander had been working so hard on in Italy. Alexander likewise pushed for reform in the churches of Spain, sending a cardinal to the court of Aragon to bring about similar reforms taking place in Italy and England and France and Germany. And we've got a couple of letters from Alexander the Church in Spain, which are of note when he specifically commends them for protecting the Jewish people living in the Iberian Peninsula. So he writes, the news which we recently heard about you is pleasing to us how you protected the Jews who are living among you so that they would not be annihilated by those who had set out against the Saracens in Spain. Indeed, those people moved either by dull ignorance or blind avarice wished to bring slaughter upon those whom divine piety predestined for salvation. Another point of note, Alexander II is the Pope who finally let St. Peter Damien return to his monastery. If you remember, he was basically forced by earlier popes to serve as Cardinal Bishop of Ostia, and he was constantly begging to return to his hermitage in Ravenna. And he died not long after that in February 22, 1072. Now, finally, Alexander's term saw real consolidation and reconciliation in southern Italy as the Normans became more and more the allies of the Pope through the works of Desiderius, who was the abbot of Monte Cassino. The Normans began the work of expelling the Saracen raiders from Sicily, and they held the Byzantine Empire, for now, at bay. But trouble was really brewing in Germany. 
you know, the imperial court more and more chafed against the upstart power of the pope. In the past, the emperor was the primary mover of events, not the papacy. The papacy would come to the emperor and beg for help, and the emperor would choose bishops and install them. And the emperor chose the pope then and protected him. And now Henry IV is sick of being pushed around by clerics, either by Anno of Cologne or the Archbishop of Bremen or by Alexander II. Heck, his dad, Henry III, had deposed three different competing popes and installed several of his own. And this sentiment is only going to continue to fester in his heart as he grew older and came into his own. But that story and the explosion it caused on the European stage will have to wait for next week because Alexander II died on April 21st, 1073. And we aren't certain where he was buried, most likely in the Lateran. He was a vigorous and principled reformer dedicated to the cause of bringing the church back to its original splendor of holiness. And his successor is going to continue that work. Indeed, he's been one of the most important reformers of them all. So get excited because next week we are talking about the great St. Gregory VII. But we, of course, already know him by another name. Next week, the energetic and holy monk Hildebrand is elected pope. Thanks for listening to Habemus Papam. You can check out the rest of the Catholic Bites podcast at catholicbitespodcast.com or find us on Apple Podcasts. Thank you and God bless you. <laughs>